Um, I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad to be preaching out of the book of Philippians, uh, getting back to what we feel God has called us to do here mainly, which is to teach through and preach through his holy word. And so we started this fall in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And I just want to say before we start, it's a real privilege to teach to you and to get to preach God's word to you. There are so many godly and uh, spiritual and learned and impressive people in this room. And uh, I'm just a humble son of a produce man from Spokane, Washington. And it is a real privilege to be able to share God's word with you, to get into it together. I have what they call Jeopardy smarts, George. Uh, you play Jeopardy with me, you'll go home crying. Um, and, but uh, to, to just be able to take the brilliant words of St. Paul and then apply them to our lives and our hearts is just a privilege beyond measure. Um, as we get into chapter 3 today, we've got 10 or 11 weeks left in, in Philippians. Um, I'm going to go full Dr. Seuss on you today. I'm going to challenge you, don't fall back into keeping spiritual score and comparing other people's righteousness to yours. Crave something more. Seek Jesus as Lord. He's the reward. You're going to be real sick of that by the end of our talk today. Let's look at Philippians chapter 3 together. And we just read, I mean, it was months ago now, but we were just in what I think is one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture, Philippians 2, where we're inspired to be like Jesus. And then Paul warns us of the danger of rejecting the grace of Jesus for our own efforts and our own works. Philippians 3 says, Finally, my brothers, and of course my brothers and sisters, Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it is safe for you. But look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we, and he gets metaphorical here, are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, Paul says. Circumcised on the eighth day. Don't want to spend my whole sermon talking about that, but that was the mark of the Jewish faith to the extent that they were even making adult converts undergo that. And so when Paul mentions that, we won't talk much more about it today, he's saying, I started out the right way. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul is assaulting and then correcting something that was vivid then and that's so vivid now. Good to see you, Bryce, out there. This is an organized and constant threat to the doctrine of the grace of Jesus Christ. There is then and now, in ways we both see and understand and ways that maybe we don't, Dave, there is an organized and constant threat to the grace of Jesus Christ. The idea that we are saved alone through faith by grace, through grace, by faith, that no one should boast, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, we are not 
working our way to heaven, but it's through Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross that we are saved. There is an organized and constant threat to that doctrine of grace, both from without and sometimes within the church, often within the church, and sometimes within our very personal struggle. We're uncomfortable with grace, and Paul says we, mu- we can't be. St. Paul uses the harshest and vilest terms to describe, demonize his opponents, and discourage the church from listening to these influences. Righteousness is not man-made or earned. It is imparted. It's the free gift of God through Jesus Christ for his followers. This, what is so just disgusting about the early days of the Bible, the early pages of the epistles and the New Testament works as it records the birth of the church, is immediately when people learn of the doctrine of grace and the opening of the doctrine of grace and the opening of heaven and the kingdom of God to the Gentiles, to those who are not Jewish, to those who are formerly thought abandoned by God, it is so offensive that just anybody's welcome in and for so many deep and multi-layered reasons, it's so offensive and so terrible that they have to assault it immediately. And so anytime Paul would roll into a town, teach the doctrine of grace, it wasn't moments, maybe at the same time, definitely the next day, people are spewing this old and pernicious lie that it is through keeping the law, the external requirements of righteousness that you will please God pervasive movement to come after Paul to re-engineer his teachings away from grace and back to the law. And much of the New Testament that Paul writes is to fix what people came in after him and broke. Believe it or not, this attempt to destroy grace is the most destructive threat to Christianity more than the outside forces of the liberal mindset of our day, the all too human and somewhat natural desire to try to earn a God's favor or better said, secure God's favor through our supreme righteousness. And believe it or not, it consciously and unconsciously resides at the highest level of church leadership in all facets of the Christian movement. This idea that there's something more, there's something extra, there's something beyond the ministry of God's one and only son dying on the cross, paying for our sins. I must do something else. There must be more to it. In the hearts and minds, too, of the worldly who don't even know what we're doing here today, who don't have church on their mind, who don't have words like grace and mercy and sanctification on their lips, even in the minds of normal, ordinary people like I was, like you once were, you are not normal and ordinary anymore in case no one told you, simply rejecting the gospel, the simple gospel of Jesus Christ often comes down to a belief it can't be that simple. It can't be that basic. It's too childlike. It's too simplistic. It's too elemental. I need more. I need more. I need more. Sometimes people want to trumpet their own self-decided spiritual superiority and the fact that we have to completely lean on Jesus Christ for our goodness, for our righteousness, for our very ability to have any reputation of goodness whatsoever is offensive. Um, Just want to recap. We're going to really preach verses uh, 7 through 11. But there's, uh, if you're taking notes, maybe this will help you remember. 
The first uh, six verses are really an opportunity to rejoice, count your blessings, be ever grateful to review, remember what you already know. We get the flavor. We don't know exactly when that Paul is bringing back this teaching to them. I already told you to look out for the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh. He uses just these very almost vulgar terms to describe how ungodly it is, what they're doing, chasing around grown men and trying to make them become Jewish before they can become Christian. We do it in different ways these days. And you know, he, he I just, gosh, there's so much there. It's not really even worth our time to go in to how sarcastic and how um, just pointed Paul is being. You can do that on your own. That doesn't seem like something I want to spend my time on this morning. Review, remember what you already know, and then some recon. Paul is telling us to always be on the lookout. One of the big weaknesses of the church today is we think everybody's cool, we think everybody's nice, we let a little sin into our doctrine, into our lives, into our churches, and we think it's not a big deal. But Paul is repeatedly giving this message of be on the alert, be on the lookout, make sure that you are at the gate, not letting this stuff in. In this case, it's the false over-spiritualization of the keeping of the law. And then just recognize through those four verses where Paul kind of brags about his pedigree, Paul knows what he's talking about. He's lived on both sides of the spiritual fence. He's lived on the side of trying to earn God's favor. He's now resting on the side of receiving God's grace. You'll notice the word confidence in there three times, confidence of the flesh. And I want to ask you to think, where is your confidence? Is there anyone in the room today that your confidence is in your first communion you did as a child or in your uh, baptism or the fact that you have godparents or, or the fact that you raised your hand in a rally or a crusade or a church room? Where is your confidence? confidence if it's anywhere other than in the grace ministry of Jesus Christ on the cross through the power of his resurrection it's ill-founded it's in the wrong places don't fall back into keeping score and comparing other people's righteousness to yours crave something more seek Jesus as Lord and he will be your reward this necessitates these first couple verses and since we haven't looked at Philippians in months a basic recap of who Paul was. You can read all about him. Those are some of the key verses of his former life and his calling in life. But if anyone could gain heaven by their birthright, their virtue, their race, their nationality, being born in the right place, what have you? It was Paul who was formerly called Saul. But instead, Paul says that nothing on earth is of any real value in terms of earning or winning God's favor or achieving spiritual perfection. It can't be done. Amen from anyone who's tried and failed. He had previously possessed all of the educational and religious bona fides, but he met God on the Damascus Road in pursuit of Christians, and he was changed into someone who would now pray for and preach to and reach for the very people he had formerly pursued to kill and to shame. It now consumes his life to share the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. Self-righteousness, religious righteousness, law-keeping, even reputation-building, he discovers, none of it is enough to impress God. 
And I want you to think, you may know about this, you may not. Think about the Hindi believer who must achieve moksha through the way of action, which is the way of knowledge, the way of devotion, or the way of action, the way of knowledge, the way of devotion, or the royal road. There are four different ways for the Hindu to attain some version of heaven. Or the Buddhist who reaches nirvana, check this out, through the eightfold path of the right understanding. Once the Buddhist has the right resolve, the right speech, the right action, the right occupation, the right effort, the right contemplation, and the right meditation, they may then maybe have qualified for the afterlife of blessing in their actions and in their accomplishments. The Muslim, it's good to know what they believe. And there's many nuances you can dig into, but it's in the news every day, our relationship to Muslim nations. Your good deeds are weighed against your bad deeds. If you have more good deeds, you will eventually get to paradise. But did you know this? After you first spend some time in hell. Or you can die as a martyr in service to Allah And then, if you die in that moment of service to him, you don't have to go through the hell and the punishment that awaits all other Muslims, but you go immediately into what they call paradise. And this is why, in just a sentence or two, we understand the zeal to die in a flame and a blaze of glory in the faith of Islam because of the reward that bypasses all of the suffering and all of the hell that comes from trying to be good. There's a humanist, if we even use that term anymore in our country, the humanist has no belief in the afterlife like the atheist. A quintessential American view of righteousness and heaven and hell is, this is what the, the, uh, the surveys tell us, is that yes, there is a God, there is a heaven, There's no hell, if you ask people in America what they think. That's not what we believe, just in case anybody's not following along too closely. But the average American says, yes, there's a heaven, there's no hell. I will be going there, but I'm too busy to really think about how. This is what their thoughtful answers really flesh out to when you look at all the major surveys and studies that have been done on American views of religion and God and heaven and hell. I will take my chances on what lies after is the quintessential American view. And then we make some jokes about, I hope there's beer there, or I hope that you can play golf or whatever, and we giggle and we don't realize that we are playing with fire, ignoring God. Now on to the teaching of St. Paul. Do you know this guy could have done anything he wanted to do with his life? In the confines and context of his culture, which are very different than nowadays, of course, he really could have absconded to the highest heights of what it means to be a human in his culture amongst his people. Think about his unique Judeo-Roman citizenship and all the doors that flung open to him, being a citizen both of God's chosen people and of the greatest city on earth at that time. He was confident in his moral superiority, but then he's confronted with the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And no matter who you are, what you are, where you live, who you know, how good you might be, how good you might be at something, how good you might want to be, how good you, uh, and no matter how much you might want to, you and I prioritize our work, our hobbies, our looks, our health even, 
every other thing, Paul instructs us, is worthless. There is studies upon studies of what he meant when he said, I count all my works as rubbish, and none of them are good, none of them are pleasing. They all must be cast away and put beneath. Everything about you, everything you hang your hat on, everything that you take pride in, everything good and bad, but especially in this context, everything good in which you measure up and say, I, uh, I surpass my neighbors and my family and even my own household. I am superior in these ways, especially those things must be cast away and put beneath and subservient to your relationship with and your pursuit of Jesus Christ. Theologian, commentator Homer Kent Jr. said this about Paul's writing, by trusting falsely in human performance, Paul had not only failed to make progress toward the righteousness that God requires, but had also let his Jewish advantages drive him to persecute the new and true church. The new church which proclaimed the message of righteousness of God received by faith, the only kind of righteousness which God accepts. Fortunately, Paul is able through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to let us in emotionally, logically, and reasonably to what was spiritually revealed to him when he was given his ministry that day on the Damascus Road and beyond. Let's read on now in verse 7. Paul describes the difference in his life now. He's looking back. He had it all in the context of his culture. He had everything, and he said, but whatever gain I formerly had, I counted as loss now for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Quite simply, Paul lays out a pros and cons table. Everything else versus Jesus. In the everything else column, all of those things that we put before others that we privately feel superior about or that we think might impress God, like those poor souls in Matthew 7 that Jesus said, I never knew you, get away from me. In that column, at the end of our lives, and now in the presence of a holy God, our works, our self-righteous efforts are worth absolutely nothing. Now over here in the Jesus column, like to the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 19, all the riches of heaven are poured out on you, to you, for you, through you. You get everything. What do you have confidence in? My confidence is in Jesus Christ, amen? Don't fall back into keeping score or comparing other people's righteousness to yours. Crave something more. Seek Jesus as Lord because he's the reward. 
Jesus is it, Paul tells us. Jesus is it. In the buffet of life, you want a heaping plate of Jesus. My friend Tom and I usually drink drip coffee that costs us about 12 cents whenever we hang out. But someone gave Tom a coupon, a gift card. And he said, Dave, clear your schedule. We're going to the Timber Creek Buffet. Now, I have ambivalent feelings about buffets. They have sneeze guards for a reason, people. And so I wanted to hang out with my friend, but I wasn't excited about, you know, getting myself there and eating all of those different things. And, and uh, it's not usually that good. And, and all you can eat, I figured that out at about 30. That's not a prize. That is, that is a punishment. That is not like, oh, yay. That's like, oh, no. And so we go, but I have a buffet strategy that is airtight. I can get eggs at home. I can get toast. I can put some waffles that are soggy into a toaster. These are things I can do, but what I do not have is an unlimited and ever-revolving and increasing and growing supply of whatever their version of bacon is. <laughs> and bacon's expensive. And so every time I do go to a buffet, if there's breakfast foods, I'm just like, I don't know, you know, I don't know where they got that from. <laughs> I don't know what is the legal requirements to classify something as gravy, because this is questionable. But that is in the shape and the color of bacon. And I want it. I want it. At a normal restaurant, men, have you ever, or, and women too, I don't want to leave you out, but have you ever ordered bacon and eggs and they give you like two little pathetic pieces of bacon? Don't put it first in the description. Call it eggs and asterisk bacon or something like that. <laughs> like they want, like it's like they're holding on to plutonium when you go to a restaurant but then you go to the buffet and there it is. And so I don't care about the consequences. I don't care about the inner turmoil. But that's what I'm gonna eat. And there comes a time as a middle-aged man when you know what you like and you know what you wanna do and you go for it. And for me, bacon is one of those things. There needs to come a time in every Christ follower's life when it's ugh, gross. Ah, tried that. Looks appealing, but I know better. Jesus. There comes that time, and Paul says it so artfully, so artistically, so brilliantly. Everything else is garbage. Everything else is refuse. Everything else is shameful. Everything else is, be, is to be discarded. But Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And then he gets beautiful in his verbiage. I want to know him. You can almost feel Paul going like, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Ooh, but to get there, I got to have the fellowship of his suffering that somehow, somehow, I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. 
There needs to come a time in every Christ follower's life, and I hope today is the time where, yeah, it's not anymore. I'm too busy for that. I'm too uh, scheduled for that. I'm too distracted for that. I'm too ashamed for that. But where we're just heaping Jesus on the plate. I want his righteousness, his resurrection, his suffering, his knowledge. I want to be like him. Where we walk into every setting and we're not obnoxious and we probably wouldn't say it out loud, but we'd say, where's the Jesus in this? I want some Jesus. The thing I'm here for in my life is Jesus. I mean, think that God gave the Spirit, God the Father gave the Spirit so that we could be like Jesus. Lord, I hear you saying, be like Jesus, love like Jesus, forgive like Jesus, give and see like Jesus. Give me some Jesus. I want to read to you from the message translation of Philippians 3, 7 through 11. It's translated to try to wake us up and not just see the Bibleese, but to interact with it. That's the purpose of the message, to be a paraphrase of God's holy word. It says, the very credentials these people are waving around as something special, I'm tearing up and throwing out with the trash. Along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant dog dung. Thanks, message. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. I gave up all that inferior stuff so I could know Christ personally, experience his resurrection power, be a partner in his suffering, and go all the way with him to death itself. If there was any way to get in on the resurrection from the dead, I want to do that too. I want to give you some practical application. Some of it's for your heart. Some of it may lead to action. Live Christ-centered, not life by the list. Figure out a way to put Jesus in the middle of your life and let everything serve that. Seek, you know that verse, seek first the kingdom of God and everything will be added to you. Don't think about how can I put Jesus first, second, or third on my list. Because have you ever noticed, I love making lists. It's the only way I ever get anything done at work. But whenever I make a list, there's always something that I didn't want to do that day. There's always something that I couldn't do that day. There's always something I put off till the next day or maybe never. When Jesus is on my list, it's going to be easy to push him off. But when he's central to my very existence, I can't get away from my love and my worship and my confession and my responsibility and my privilege of following him. Give more time, money, and focus to his work. Your bank account will tell you how you feel about Jesus and his work. Your presence in different places and what and where you value being will tell you your relationship with God. And especially what comes out of our mouths will reveal where our hearts are really at. Don't compare, be self-aware. Don't judge your righteousness on your betterness than people because it's really easy to find somebody you're better than and it may not be an appropriate standard. Pursue Jesus Christ with dogged, central determination 
And I want to challenge you today to do something different. If it's not working, if that passion's not there, if that zeal's not there, if that interest and in the, if you're feeling apathetic or if you're feeling like I don't know what's next for me, try something different. Serve in a way that's different. Posture yourself humble instead of prideful. Be places and think, what am I going to get? What am I going to give today? Not what am I going to get? Put yourself in places of comfort or discomfort in this moment that's going to get you back with Jesus Christ. I do want to ask you to do something that's not the most thrilling and compelling end to a sermon, but you have a tool right in front of you for so many of you and so much of our church that's really going to help you. Would you, for the second week in a row, would you grab that response card that's in the seat in front of you? Get one out, pass them down the row, help somebody get one. Do you have any grab-a-card music you can play behind? Because <laughs> it's really boring right now, but now it's, like, now it's like spiritual. Grab that card in front of you. See? See what happened? <laughs> grab that card in front of you. And I, th- for one of you, I have a big ask for some of you. If you're ready to help other people grow in Christ, we talked about this last week, but if you remember, it was Snowpocalypse 2.0 last week, so we missed some of you. If you want to let God help you to disciple others, would you put a, just put a D on that? Just put the big letter D and fill it out and hand it in. But there are responses on there that work for anything that's going on in your life. If it's just that I'm new today, would you let us know that so we can invite you to men's breakfast this Saturday, to the well for women, to a small group. It's time to get baptized next month. And a lot of you have been putting that off because of fear or crowds or you're not sure if you want to follow Jesus wholly yet. Check that little box or bubble today. But that's an opportunity to do something different, to self-identify. If you need help following Jesus, check that new or write us a note. Put a prayer request that you haven't shared with anyone else on the back of that. And like I said, it's not the most thrilling way to end a sermon, but there's an opportunity right in front of you week after week after week to make a a decision, to draw a line in the sand and say, today is a day that I give more of my life to Jesus Christ. Let's not fall back into keeping score and comparing other people's righteousness to yours. Let's crave something more and seek Jesus as Lord because he is actually the reward. Would you pray with me? I just want to give you a moment to bow your heads and talk to God, confess sin, or think about what you've heard today. And I cannot underline enough how humbling it is to think that you sit here and you listen to me, but you're not listening to me as much as we are opening up God's holy word. And he speaks. He speaks to our hearts. He speaks to our lives. God, help us to recognize that sacrifice for Jesus is a joy. Help us, God, when we pray to say things like, I want more Jesus in my life. We might accidentally say church or group or serving because those are the words we use, but help us to understand those are just environments of grace where we can share Jesus and show Jesus and shine for Jesus, where we can grow. 
Lord, make sense in each of our minds and hearts. What is it to step up to that buffet and to always start with Jesus? To always load our plate up with you and your words and your heart and your ways and your attitude and your humility and your purity and your wonder and your life and your light and your resurrection, your bread. God, what is it like to do that? Lord, we just thank you. We ask that you'd work in our lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray.